Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Welcome back to our series of exegetical explorations on the book of Malachi. As we've been studying this fascinating and hard-hitting prophecy, we've come across a fair number of difficult issues in not only interpretation, but translation as well. The text before us in this episode, 214b to 16, is going to push us even further. It contains some extremely difficult matters in the realm of interpretation. So we'll survey a few of these so people can understand some of these complications and so we don't end up leaning too heavily on highly conjectured readings. Now, I say that just to give you a heads up. This will be a bit on the heady and academic side, but pay attention, grab a piece of paper and a pen and take notes and have a Bible in front of you and you should be able to follow along. Uh, Before we dive in and look closely at the details, it would be helpful to take a step back and look at the big picture. Besides an introduction and conclusion section, Malachi consists of three main accusations against the people. The first, in 1.6-2.9, is against the priests and condemns them for their improper offerings, and so desecrating the Levitical covenant. The second, starting in 2.10, is against the people and condemns them for acting treacherously by breaking their marriage covenants. And then Malachi's third main accusation against the people starts in 3.7 with the problem of people not paying the full tithe. And so the land is not producing as it should. We can think of this as breaking the Deuteronomic covenant. Currently, we're in the middle of this marital covenant section. Malachi has just described Israel's sin in marrying the daughter of a foreign god in verse 11. And then in 14a, has been faithless or acted treacherously against the wife of your youth. There's a possibility that these two do not go hand in hand and that Malachi is discussing two sort of unrelated problems. Perhaps some men were marrying outside of the faith and others were divorcing their wives. And while we can't rule this out, it doesn't seem to be a situation with the people at this time in light of Ezra and Nehemiah. Instead, I think it's easiest to link the two. The people were leaving their earlier marriages to marry women who did not worship Yahweh. The problem here is the pull that idolatrous women would have had in turning the people away from Yahweh. And we've discussed that already God would no longer accept their worship because of this. But there's another problem here too. It's also a sin against the women who were left. And in fact, it flies in the face of God's plan for marriage. So verses 14b to 16 give something of Malachi's theology of marriage to shed further light on the egregious nature of what the people were doing. The higher view one has of marriage, the more reprehensible divorce becomes. And so Malachi reminds God's people of the seriousness of this relationship and gives us one of the most significant texts in all of Holy Scripture on the theology of marriage. So keep your eye out for how Malachi does so in our text Uh, as I read my translation. And she is your companion and the wife of your covenant. Did not one create and give a remnant of the spirit to him? And what was the one seeking? A godly seed. So guard yourself in your spirit and the wife of your youth. Do not act treacherously. If he hates, he divorces, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, then covers his garment with violence, says Yahweh Sabaoth. So guard your spirit and do not act treacherously. 
The first insight into the seriousness of marriage is in 14b. Uh, the she was described in the beginning of verse 14 as the wife of your youth. Now, marriage was an expected, assumed reality for people. Unlike today, when people make their own personal decision about if they're going to marry and then when do they want to get married. Marriage would have happened early back then, in the early teens, at least for women. How men were to view their spouses is described in 14b with a play on words in the Hebrew, since the word for companion and covenant sounds so similar in the Hebrew. I suppose that the closest we could come to in English is companion and covenant, chaperitka and beritika. Uh, this is such a crucial text for a biblical theology of marriage. Uh, the commentator Anthony Pedersen says here, quote, Masculine equivalent occurs a dozen times, often referring to a friend or companion or to business partners. The wife is certainly not viewed in ancient Israel as a chattel or possession to be disposed of at will. She is an equal companion to her husband, even if she exercises different roles." End quote. This is a really great perspective, uh, though I would quibble with it just a little bit, and I'm going somewhere with this. It's going too far to say uh, it is certainly not viewed in ancient Israel. There are plenty of examples in biblical history where women are treated as property. Think of the sad story of Leah, and it certainly wasn't the view of Malachi's audience. That's why he's correcting them. They weren't treating their wives the way they ought to have been treated. Instead, if they had viewed their spouses the way they should have, they wouldn't have been treating them so cruelly. Our text in Malachi is so important in, in that it clearly shows that those who did hold to such a view were reflecting their surrounding culture, their surrounding, we could even say, sexist culture, which viewed women as property, but were not representing God's perspective on marriage. A husband and a wife are to be companions, equal partners in a friendship. Moreover, a wife is not only a woman of companionship, but also a woman of covenant. Marriage is a solemn contract made before God. Perhaps that is why we read earlier in the verse that Yahweh has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth. The men in Malachi's day had made an oath, a binding pledge and covenant, and the seriousness of that union makes their act of treachery all the more heinous. Verse 15 continues to give reasons for the sanctity of marriage and the seriousness of breaking that bond. That is certain. However, just about everything else in this verse is unclear. The ancient translations clearly struggle with it. And in fact, John Calvin wrote, quote, There is in this verse some obscurity, and hence it has been that no interpreter has come to the meaning of the prophet, end quote. That's quite a statement. And still today, there's no consensus. Uh, Zender spends 15 pages discussing the options. There are three main unknown variables that change the import of this text. The first one is the word not. Seems pretty simple at first, right? But when you think about it, not negate something. Now, if this is the idea, then we have something like the New American Standard. Not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. In this understanding, those who have this remnant of the Spirit, uh, perhaps something like uh, the least bit of moral insight, would not act in the way described in the previous verse. Uh, that makes great sense. The downside is that the word one in our passage seems to be heavily theological, more than just saying somebody. Uh, the unity or oneness uh, is such a big deal in this context. The unit started with the question, has not 
one God created us in verse 10. Instead, in contrast to the New American Standard, it is possible to take the word not as part of a question, which is the way most other translations have it. In this case, uh, we don't have a negation, but actually an affirmation, uh, just like uh, the question in verse 10, like a rhetorical not. The second variable is the word one. This could be the subject or the object of the word made, one. So uh, one person does it or he made them one. Now, if it's the former, if one is the subject, that is the doer of the action, uh, again, there are many proposals like one father Abraham or Adam. But if we keep verse 10 in mind, I think one God still is the best option. So we have something like the NIV, has not the one God made you? And as a close second, uh, we could say uh, the word one could be the object of the sentence. So something like the English Standard Version, did he not make them one? And we could bring in ideas like Genesis 2, 24, about the two becoming one flesh. Now, the last variable that really affects our understanding is this remnant of the spirit. Some have argued that there was an error in copying the manuscript and that the word remnant is actually similar to the word flesh. So the NIV has, you belong to him in body and spirit. And the New Revised Standard Version has, both flesh and spirit are his. However, the reading remnant is in all our manuscripts and ancient translations. And changing the Hebrew is kind of like a last-ditch effort when nothing else makes sense. And I don't think the situation is that desperate. And so, though difficult, um, the Hebrew text as we have it is not completely incomprehensible, and I think we should keep the word remnant. The most likely understanding, to me anyway, is to see the Spirit as the Holy Spirit, which is the binding glue in a marriage, which God uses in creating this union. It may also be that uh, the remnant of the Spirit refers to the wife. Uh, the attractive thing about this interpretation is that when we read two times in the text to follow, guard yourself in your spirit and do not act treacherously, uh, it might mean that the word spirit is being used similarly. So uh, to summarize, the problem actually is not so much that the Hebrew makes no sense, but that it makes too much sense and that there are many possible ideas it could convey, and it's hard to know exactly or precisely um, what Malachi is trying to communicate. And while I've given the interpretation that makes the most sense to me, it would be unwise to hang a lot of weight on any of these particular decisions to form our doctrine. Whatever Malachi's precise point, what he's underscoring is God's intention for a committed monogamous marriage for the purpose of godly offspring. This is, of course, a purpose of marriage. It's not the only purpose of marriage, and it should go without saying that those who do not have children don't have a useless marriage. From the Song of Solomon, clearly there's benefit in being united in marriage for the purpose of enjoying the other person's company. From Ephesians, we learn that marriage reflects the relationship between Christ and the church, and, and so on. So the emphasis is not so much a mandate to have children, as it is to explain that God's purposes in marriage involve the raising of godly children, with the emphasis on godly. In that culture, producing children would have been the assumption. The severity of the people's actions are further explained in verse 16, followed again by the admonition to guard the spirit and not act treacherously. Now, if we're feeling a little beat up by some of the technical difficulties of verse 15, uh, well, verse 16 is going to be the knockout punch. 
Some translations have God as the subject of the verb hate, and some have the generic he. So, as an example of the former, uh, the New American Standard reads, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong. Now, as an example of the latter interpretation, uh, the ESV reads, For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, and so on. The Hebrew can read either way, though the reading, I hate divorce, in which God is the subject, is a little more contrived. Although Malachi has a very high view of marriage, I think this interpretation is putting it too strongly. After all, Jeremiah 3.8 and Hosea 2.2 portray God himself as divorcing his people. Furthermore, there are other biblical instructions which do allow for divorce. So this verse should not be understood as a blanket statement that all divorce in every situation is wrong. In fact, remember Nehemiah commanded as much. Instead, the idea is that the man who hates his wife and so divorces her is guilty. Hugenberger, citing ancient Near Eastern parallels, argues the combination of hate and divorce means he divorces without justification. The person who does act in this hateful way to his wife is covering his garment with violence. In fact, there's some indication that marriage itself was seen as a covering in the Old Testament, like clothes that you put on, as in Deuteronomy 22:30 or Ruth 3:9 or Ezekiel 16 verse 8. The idea is that the one who acts in this way is parading his sin around and actually is doing so to his own destruction. The situation in Malachi was a specific one. And so we need to be careful in putting ourselves into the passage when we apply it. Not everyone who gets a divorce today is doing so for the same reasons described in Malachi chapter 2. There are other biblical commands which talk about the acceptability of divorce in certain situations. Malachi 2 can't be taken as a condemnation of all divorce. And yet, Malachi 2 must be taken to mean that all divorce is out of the perfect will of God. All divorce is outside of his plan and his intentions for humanity. This is not the way God designed marriage. The one who took Adam and Eve and united them together for the purpose of raising godly offspring is still a witness to our covenants today. Is this how we view marriage? Do we view it as a holy covenant made before God? Do you view your spouse as your permanent companion a friend and partner in life. Guard your spirit, saints. Don't act treacherously. Keep your promises. This is of fundamental importance. If we fail here, we fail the covenant. And there's no use pressing on to other matters until we are right here. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu slash partner.